This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, should the U.S. Supreme Court expand beyond the current nine members? During his term in office, former President Donald Trump had the opportunity to fill three vacancies. This resulted in altering the ideological balance of the court from moderate liberal to conservative. Many Democrats pressed President Joe Biden to create a presidential commission to investigate the possibility of adding seats to offset the current conservative makeup of the Supreme Court. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. The Supreme Court is the head of the judicial branch of the U.S. government and, as mentioned, is made up of nine justices, each appointed by the president following a justice's retirement or death. Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution gives Congress the power to determine the number of Supreme Court justices. According to the White House website, there have been periods with only six justices. However, since 1869, the Supreme Court has maintained one chief justice and eight associate justices for a total of nine members. Although the Supreme Court was intended to be a nonpartisan institution that ruled purely on constitutionality, Justices themselves tend to have a partisan lean, and according to the Washington Post, for 50 years the court had a liberal majority. However, during Donald Trump's four-year term, he appointed three Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, leaving the court with a 6-3 to three conservative majority. With the Democrats in the majority in both houses of Congress and a Democratic president, Democrats could change the number of justices on the Supreme Court and appoint more liberal-leaning justices. However, the New York Times reports that, quote, while Mr. Biden, a former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has asserted that the system of judicial nominations is getting out of whack, he has declined to say whether he supports altering the size of the court or making other changes, like imposing term limits to the current system of lifetime appointments, closed quote. The Hill newspaper reports that Biden's presidential commission on the Supreme Court had its first public meetings in late June 2021. New York Times reporters Michael Scheer and Carl Hulse say that, quote, progressives argue that Republicans unfairly gained an advantage on the court by blocking former President Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland in 2016, currently Biden's attorney general, and they see adding seats to the court, setting term limits, or instituting other changes as a way to offset the power of any one president to influence its makeup, close quote. Conservatives have characterized any attempts to add seats to the court as court packing, not unlike the failed effort by former President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1930s. Well, with us for an update on the debate over Supreme Court expansion are two judicial experts. John Malcolm is the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. And Elliot Mintzberg, he's senior fellow at the Liberal People for the American Way. For the last 30 years, his work has focused on the Supreme Court, the Department of Justice, religious liberty, and other civil rights or civil liberties issues. Our guests join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. 
Good to be here. Pleasure to be with you. First, let's have a primer on the role of the Supreme Court in our political system as the third branch of government. John Malcolm, how would you characterize the significance of the role of the Supreme Court within the judicial branch of our government? Well, within the judicial branch, it's the head of the judicial branch. So its rulings have to be accepted by all of the lower federal courts who must apply them. They are the last word unless the Constitution is amended or they reconsider a previously issued opinion on constitutional issues. And if they make an error in statutory cases, then it's up to Congress to fix those. It is the one independent, apolitical branch of government. And for that reason, I think that this court packing effort, which we will be discussing, is very dangerous because it threatens that independence. Well, thank you for that. Let me turn now to Elliot Mintzberg. Elliot, for your take on the significance of the role of the Supreme Court, anything to add or potentially subtract from what Uh, John Malcolm said? I agree with much of what John said. Unfortunately, I think because of the actions of the other branches, the Supreme Court is no longer apolitical, but has become politicized. And that's crucial because the court partly because of the authority it has for the reasons that John said, has been critical for protecting the basic rights and liberties of the American people. It was the Supreme Court that decided in 1954 that segregation, school segregation, violated the Constitution. It was the Supreme Court that made crucial decisions protecting people in terms of housing discrimination, free speech, in many, many other areas. And those high stakes are exactly why we think that now, because of what the court packing the Republicans have already done, it is a good time to expand the size of the court. So turning back to you, John Malcolm, you have already indicated that you're opposed to adding seats to the court. Please elaborate on how you see the risks of altering the size of the court. Well, the reason why one would pack the court is if you believed that you were unhappy with decisions that the court has made or that you anticipate that they will make in the future, and you want to exercise a political influence on the court by appointing people who are more of your mindset, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, and which you believe will increase the likelihood that in the future the Supreme Court will issue rulings that you like. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do. We have seen this kind of thing before. So when Franklin Roosevelt was unhappy with some of the decisions of the Supreme Court, he attempted to pack the court. That effort failed, but ultimately he ended up, well, for a decade, there were nine justices who had been appointed by Democrats and no Republican appointees on the court. And then we also saw this on the flip side when the Warren Court in the 60s were issuing very liberal opinions and there was an impeach Earl Warren movement, when you attempt political manipulation of the court because it somehow doesn't fit with the results that you like, you are threatening the one independent branch of government that we have. Elliot Mintzberg, I take it you have a very different take on expanding the Supreme Court. Indeed, it's much, much more than the results of what the court has done or may do. I've been following the court for 30 years. I've been very critical of past decisions and never argued for adding justice to the court. What's happened is court packing by Mitch McConnell and other Republicans that has stacked the deck in their favor. In 2016, when Justice Scalia died almost a year before the election, even though 10 times in the past, 
the president had nominated and the Senate had confirmed a replacement for that justice during that period. The Republicans refused to do anything at all to move the nomination of then-Judge Merrick Garland and essentially took that seat away from President Obama's appointment and gave it to President Trump and then helped him along by eliminating the filibuster when he nominated Neil Gorsuch. Then, four years later, when Justice Ginsburg died, literally less than two months before the election, you would think if they were consistent, the Republicans would say, oh, well, let's wait and see what the next president has to say, what the people have to say. Uh Uh-uh. They went ahead, rushed the nomination through, and in fact, for the first time in history, voting on Justice Barrett occurred literally after ballots in the November election had already begun to be cast. And so they took a seat away that time from President Biden. So that kind of court stacking is unprecedented in our history, stacking or packing, whatever you want to call it. And it's that, plus the very bad decisions that have come forward, that makes it so crucial, in our view, that we think about expanding the size of the Supreme Court. Could I respond to that? Well, absolutely, John. I was going to ask you to respond to Elliot, who's basically arguing that the Republicans started this so-called court packing for the reasons Elliot just articulated. So let me get you to respond to that. Sure. First of all, let's be clear. The Republicans did not pack the Supreme Court. They filled vacancies. There is a world of difference between filling existing vacancies and adding seats so that you can fill them. It is throughout history that when the presidency is controlled by one party and the Senate, the House is not involved in the confirmation process, is controlled by the other party during an election year, that when they are of opposite parties, very, very few nominees get confirmed. And when they are of the same party, overwhelmingly they get confirmed. The last time there was a vacancy in an election year in which the presidency was controlled by one party, the Senate was controlled by another party, and a nominee was confirmed, you would have to go back to the Grover Cleveland administration. And in terms of who started this, you can like or not like what the Republicans did. But let's be clear, when the Senate Judiciary Chairman during George H.W. Bush's first term, one Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, he announced to President Bush, who was running for re-election, if there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, do not bother sending us a nominee because we will not take up that nominee. As it happened, there wasn't a vacancy. But you know, politics gets involved in the confirmation process. You may or may not like what the Republicans did, but they did not pack the court. And what they did has a very rich history in this country. I do disagree, but I don't want to get into debating the history. The fact is, whether you're adding seats or arranging who gets to make the nominations, either way, you're packing the court with justices or adding to the court justices that reflect the ideological views of the appointing party. And that's exactly what happened to a huge amount. Never before in history have we seen this particular constellation of what happened. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And Elliot Minsberg, from whom you just heard, senior fellow at People for the American Way. And we're discussing the pros and cons of adding seats or making changes to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
This is a reminder that Our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Peter Amondi. He's a native of Kenya, now living in New York City. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page, or certainly you're welcome to send us an email to encounter at voanews.com. So back to our program, our discussion about the benefits and risks of adding seats to our nine-member Supreme Court or otherwise making changes. So back to you, John Malcolm, just a bit more on the politics of this, because it's something that Democrats probably would argue that helped to precipitate this move to at least look into adding seats to the court. The reasons that Elliot Mintzberg articulated before, the fact that then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blocked the hearing of Merrick Garland, Judge Merrick Garland, at least over nine months before an election was going to take place. But then when elections were almost less than 30 days away just last year, he did ram through the nomination of conservative Judge Amy Coney Barrett. I believe Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had barely been uh, laid to rest. But at any rate, do you see what some would say are hypocritical moves by the Republicans? Can you at least see some basis for that, for frustration? I can see why they say that. The confirmation process has been politicized now for decades, going back at least to the failed confirmation of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court, and probably before then. There have been lots of Supreme Court justice nominees who have been rejected for political reasons, as opposed to supposed to ramrodding something through. For much of our nation's history, there weren't even hearings for these confirmations, and there were many people who were nominated and confirmed the same day. Justice John Paul Stevens, I think, was nominated and confirmed nine days later. Look, politics is involved in this, not so much, although Elliot might or might disagree with this, because the judges are partisans, although some probably are, but there is no question that conservatives tend to appoint justices with a different judicial philosophy. They tend to be originalists, and Democrats tend to appoint justices who have a different philosophy, referred to as living constitutionalism, where they think there's a lot more play in the joints about what these constitutional phrases and terms mean. And because there are only nine justices and vacancies don't come along very often, the process is highly politicized. And all you need to do is tune into about five minutes of one of these Supreme Court confirmation hearings, and you can see that. I agree with much of what John said, but I think it's much more in terms of what's happened recently than the differences in judicial philosophy, which I agree 100 percent are legitimate for the Senate to debate and for the presidents to make decisions on. What we've seen more recently, thanks to these three Trump justices, are fundamental changes in how the Supreme Court operates and what some people have called the threat to democracy itself that it's posed through, for example, the recent Supreme Court decision on the Voting Rights Act and the recent Supreme Court decision essentially setting the stage for allowing large anonymous political donations. What I'm talking about is another particular thing that we've seen for the first time in a long time under the Trump justices, the misuse of the so-called shadow docket. It's always the case that there will be emergency situations that the Supreme Court needs to deal with. And ordinarily, the rule has always been that 
you don't grant relief to somebody on an emergency basis without full consideration, oral argument, briefing, etc., unless the law, the injury is very, very clear. Well, what we've seen since Justice Gorsuch joined the court is that the number of these shadow docket cases has increased by more than four times in the entire period of the Obama and Bush administration. There are only around 10 such shadow docket major rulings. There have been more than 40 since the Trump justices have joined the court. And they've done things like threaten public health through providing religious exemptions for COVID-19 rules and doing it in many instances without even saying which justice voted which way and with virtually no explanation. We think, frankly, some reform to the shadow docket itself ought to be done by Congress, and even conservatives like Louis Gohmert have agreed with us. But it is yet another reason why what's happening now is different than what we've seen before and why adding to the Supreme Court size is a good idea. Could I respond to that briefly? Well, absolutely, John. I wanted to get your take on that. The fact that Elliot is saying that currently many people see a fundamental threat to democracy with respect to rulings on Voting Rights Act and, of course, other issues. Well, there'll be no question that there are going to be rulings that conservatives will like that Elliot and the people for the American way will not like. In the Brinovich case, that's the voting rights case, is certainly one of them. I'll get to a shadow docket point in just a moment, but I do want to point out that this is not the so-called conservative court. Let's take off a few of the things that they did and didn't do. They ruled that President Trump could not unwind DACA. They ruled that President Trump could not add a citizenship question to the census. They ruled that Title VII, which deals with employment discrimination, rules against discriminating on the basis of sex, also included sexual orientation and gender identity. They refused to end the CDC's eviction moratorium. They unanimously ruled that President Trump has to turn over his tax returns to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They declined to declare Obamacare unconstitutional, and they declined to get involved in the election disputes, not to mention the fact that over 60% of the cases that they considered on the merits were either unanimous decisions or near unanimous decisions. Now, Elliot, raises a very interesting point about the so-called shadow docket. And, you know, maybe there is something to reform in the shadow docket. I disagree with this characterization about the emergency rulings they made with respect to the pandemic and church services. To me, that's about protecting the free exercise rights of the people who attend those churches. But look, last year was an incredibly unusual year. You had a lot of government mandates coming down because of the pandemic that required quick rulings. And you also ended up having a lot of lower court judges, primarily appointed by Democratic presidents, who had entered a record number of nationwide injunctions to prevent President Trump for good or for ill from implementing policies that he wanted to do. So whether the shadow docket is going to continue with the amount of importance that I would concede it had this past year remains to be seen. And I'm certainly willing to conserve potential reforms to the shadow docket that perhaps Elliot and I could find common ground on some of those. Well, Elliot, uh, let me get you to respond to some of the good rulings that John Malcolm articulated by this more conservative court offset the more dangerous ones that you cited? Unfortunately, they don't. Any court, no matter how conservative and extreme, is not going to go quite as far as some of its advocates would like, although plenty of conservatives, maybe not John, but others, have criticized those very rulings that he's just talked about. Many of those rulings, by the way, were before the 6-3 current composition of the court, and therefore, who knows what will happen. 
But when you see the court literally rewriting the Voting Rights Act, as it did in the Brnovich case, when you see for the first time the court agreeing to consider cases that threaten the whole idea of women being able to get an abortion before a fetus's viability, that's an issue that will be considered next year. You see an enormous threat to people's rights and to our fundamental democracy in what this court unfortunately may do and to a certain extent has done already. But again, that plus the kinds of court packing maneuvers or stacking, if you will, that the Republicans have done already are what makes this time different than other times where John and I will often disagree on what the court does or doesn't do. John Malcolm, let me ask you both a very simple question. Set aside for a moment, expanding the Supreme Court. What about imposing term limits? Where do you fall on that question? Well, so I actually testified before the Presidential Commission and spoke a bit about term limits. I view term limits as different from court packing. I do not think that it's the panacea that people who push for it think it will be. They're talking primarily about non-renewable 18-year terms. 18-year terms are still a very, very long time. You can still have people who will die out of rotation, if you will, that will allow one president to make more appointments than others. Look, at least the difference there, if you think that the length of terms is a problem, I don't happen to think so, is that most people believe that that would have to be accomplished by a constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendments are different in that it requires broad bipartisan consensus and adoption by a large number of the electorate, and it would apply to future vacancies. Elliot Mintzberg, what's your position on term limits? couple of points. We do think term limits ought to also be explored and are a potentially important improvement, may over the long run decrease some of the politicization if it becomes clear that every president will get a chance to nominate two Supreme Court justices. But I will say, A, it shouldn't be instead of adding justice to the court. I think the two try to aim at slightly different problems and ought to be perceived that way. B, the point that John makes about the constitutional amendment, I can't fully agree with that. First, there are some people who believe as long as justices after their 18th year can continue as lifetime federal judges, but just on another court, that it might very well not require a constitutional amendment. And B, the very fact that the number of justices can be changed by simple statute, as it's been done many times in the 17th and 18th century, shows that it's a perfectly permissible thing to do that the Constitution clearly contemplated. Well, quickly before we close, two quick questions. So back to you once again, John Malcolm. Do you know where the American people stand on this topic, whether or not it could undermine trust of the American people if there is an expansion of the Supreme Court or perhaps a change in term limits? Well, I haven't seen any polling numbers, but I certainly think that anything that is done that creates the perception or enhances the perception that judges are nothing but partisans in robes does damage to the court's credibility, its independence, and to the rule of law. And those are things that we desperately need during tense times, such as the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. We've needed it at other times in our nation's history, and again, I'm sure we will need it in the future. And if we pack the court now and damage the court's independence, we do so at our peril. Elliot 
Mintzberg, if the American people see efforts to expand the Supreme Court as political moves, could that undermine the trust of the American people in the court? How do you see it? Anything's possible, but frankly, what has undermined the trust of the American people significantly, and polls reflect this in the Supreme Court, is what the Republicans have already done to turn the Supreme Court so much more into a political institution that does not do justice for ordinary Americans. And that's what adding justice to the court, reforming the shadow docket, adding term limits can help do to restore more confidence in the Supreme Court and let it go back to what it is supposed to do, to be a more apolitical institution that really does dispense justice for everybody. On that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, John Malcolm, Vice President for the Institute for Constitutional Government and Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and Elliot Mintzberg, Senior Fellow at People for the American Way. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your excellent analysis of this controversial but critical issue. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.